Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. And today, we're very pleased and honored to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Fuqua and Dr. Daniel Strudwick. And we're going to be discussing their new book out from Ignatius Press, by strange ways. Now, Joe Resinello, I don't know about you. I, I, I love conversion stories. I, I just, I, you know, I think they're so important. Uh, they're, they're, a lot of them are so in- interesting and entertaining. And that's what, and that's what uh, Jonathan and Daniel are going to talk about today and the stories in their book. And we, as always, we encourage you to go out and buy the book, but also support our Catholic publishers. So Ignatius Press, Ignatius Press. Don't go buy it on Amazon. Buy it on Ignatius Press. Um, so uh, some of you out there, might know these authors, but having said that, I just want to give a a quick bio. Dr. Jonathan Fuqua is an assistant professor of philosophy at Conception Seminary College. He is the co-author of Faith and Reason. Philosophers explain their turn to Catholicism, which is also out at Ignatius, and has published several articles in academic journals such as American Philosophical Quarterly, Synthes, and the Oxford Journal of Law and Religion. Together with with his wife, Angela, he has five children, and they were received into the Catholic Church in 2017. Uh, Dr. Daniel Strudwick is a professor of theology at Quincy University. He has an STB from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, so does Joe Resinello, and a PhD in theology from Duquesne University. I was only kidding about Joe Resinello. I went to Harvard (laughs) on the Hudson. Harvard on the Hudson. Jonathan Fuqua, Daniel Strudwick, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe, brothers. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Joe Resinello. Uh, we always start with a prayer, guys, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. To echo what Joe said, because um, I think it's absolutely spot on, everyone does like a conversion story. Um, so many in the faiths, from St. Paul onwards. I mean, everyone loves to hear their story. Um, with that said, I think this book is unique because you're exclusively discussing the conversion stories of theologians. I think that's interesting. It's an interesting take. Um, why just theologians? I guess uh, first, uh, John, then we'll go to Dan. Yeah, good question. Um, for one thing, it seemed like in the in the conversion literature that there was no volume dedicated specifically to theologian converts. And so as a scholar, anytime you see a, a gap in the literature, you think, oh, there's something I could, there's something I could do. And, uh, and moreover, it seemed like a worthwhile mm-hmm. gap to fill um, because uh, it, it gives theologically serious non-Catholic Christians or just non-Catholics in general 
the opportunity to see why uh, professional theologians uh, might be attracted to Catholicism. Uh, you, you guys had mentioned that I'd edited an earlier book on philosopher uh, converts. And what, one thing I noticed about that book is that some of my Protestant friends um, weren't very impressed by philosopher uh, converts. You know, uh, they, they, they wanted to know what do Bible scholars think? What do theologians think? I, I don't, I'm not that moved by what philosophers might think. I, I think this comes from the, the Protestant tradition's uh, emphasis on sola scriptura, you know, the Bible alone. And so the philosophical musings of philosophers wasn't too impressive to them. And so I thought, well, uh, maybe, you know, looking at the literature, there's, there's no book for theologian converts. Maybe it's time to create one and give those Protestant readers a chance to see what uh, Catholic Bible scholars and Catholic theologians who have thought about these issues quite seriously uh, think and why they might be attracted to uh, the church. Thank you for that, Jonathan. Dan, your comments on that. Yeah, I, I would just say sometimes people ask me why I'm involved with pro Project Being that I'm not a convert, and uh, and Jonathan is, and um, why I would have interest in it. And um, uh, Jonathan pitched this to me originally after he he did well with the, the first book, and I and we both thought about it and said, uh, for, for the reason he just uh, reasons he just mentioned that it would be a, a good venture. But uh, for me, I thought, you know, there, it, it it answers the question. Um, why for, for those who are cradle catholics why we stay in the church so it's not just why people would come in but what what keeps us in the church what are the treasures that people outside of the catholic church discover that make them want to come in and then it helps us to reappreciate those things because i think as cradle catholics sometimes we forget how lucky we are to be part of the catholic church and all that it has to offer so Right. I, I mean, I, I could say from my own experience, I mean, when I was younger and I went to Catholic school, so did Joe. Um, I went to Catholic high school, Catholic college. I really didn't get I, 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 I didn't get catechized well. All right. I, I, and God bless, you know, the, the, the priests and Seton Hall prep and Seton Hall University, whatever. Uh, but I just did not Maybe part of, and probably part of that was me too. All right. Um, and then I spent 20 years really not practicing the faith, but coming back to the faith. One thing I realized is this is a deep, you know, leaving aside, like Dan, uh, John mentioned about about sola scriptura, like our Protestant brothers and sisters, they don't look to like to look at anything outside of the Bible. But the fact is, if you look at the philosophical tradition of the church, if you understand the why of things, I can't see not being in the church. Now, I'll speak for myself personally. I've had these conversations with atheists. To me, it's either Catholicism or atheism. I don't I do not believe in Judaism. I do not believe in Protestantism. I don't believe in Islam. OK, I'm not a new ager. OK, I believe in Catholicism. Because I, first and foremost, I think, because philosophically, it is the most grounded worldview there is. All right. And then we could, you know, because that's what a lot of people need. So that leads into my question. This Catholic or religion in general, if you want to keep it with just Catholicism, Dan, I'll start with you. Um, does religion have a smart people issue? Because if you listen to Sam Harris and people like that, you ain't that smart if you're if you're religious. If you listen to Richard Dawkins, you should be mocked for merely believing in God, not believing Jesus Christ rose from the dead, for merely believing in God, you should be mocked. What's your response to that, Dan, and then John, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of the people that, you know, the, the new atheists or this, that whole group, um, you know, I don't think that they have really looked at the, the vast intellectual tradition over the last 2000 years and and taken seriously all of the people who have contributed to it the smartest people right so the the the, the wisest and smartest um that have have thought belief in god was uh was very 
incredible. And, and uh, that I, I think for many of those people, they would have thought that that not having a belief in God or at least taking the religious question seriously, um, they, they would have thought that was a non-starter. Um, so, you know, I think that we need to do maybe a better job of articulating the faith uh, in a in a way that sh that shows this this really impressive intellectual tradition that we've had. Thank you for that, John. Your comments, please. Yeah, that's a great question, Joe. The, the question of whether religion has a smart people issue. Before I answer, let, uh, let me just piggyback off of what Daniel said about about um, some of the new atheists. Uh, you know, Richard Dawkins in particular, just to take one example. I, re I remember hearing one time that his fellow uh, colleague at Oxford, Keith Ward, who's a, who's a theologian, once said of Dawkins that he, his understanding of philosophy and theology was less than a freshman student who'd had a single philosophy course there at, there at Oxford. And, and, and the fact is that people like Daw Dawkins are just philosophically and theologically illiterate. When you read what they say about religion, it, it, it's, 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 it's obvious to anyone who knows the tradition that these guys aren't very, haven't paid any attention to it. I, I think I think that, that that religion does have a it's yes and no on the question of whether religion has a smart people issue. I mean, first of all, there's obviously a widespread perception among intellectual types that faith and reason are in conflict, and this perception has permeated our entire our, our entire culture and affects the way people in that culture look at uh, look at faith. And so, uh, and 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 leads to a widespread perception, a false perception that faith and reason are in conflict, and thus that to be a, a a person of faith, you have to check your brains at the church door. But a second reason for that for that perception in our culture, I think, is that a lot of Christians have failed to love God with their minds. They just don't think in a deep way about the faith, and so they can't explain it, they can't defend it, and they can't they can't say how it relates to things that non Christians care about, like how does faith relate to science. And that kind of intellectual shallowness only reinforces the perception that religion has a smart people problem. But the no part of that answer is that, I mean, we, we, in reality, faith and reason don't conflict. In fact, they can't conflict. This is because the truths of faith and the truths of reason have the same divine source. And so since God, God is truth itself and therefore supreme, supremely rational, and God is the source of all the truths revealed by faith and also all the truths discovered by reason, and because also truth cannot contradict itself, we know that the truths of faith and reason cannot conflict. Um, rather, as Pope St. John Paul II says at the beginning of uh, Fides et Ratio, faith and reason, I'm going to butcher the exact line, but it's something like faith and reason are the two wings on which the human spirit rises to a, a greater contemplation of, of the truth. And, and I think this, idea, this perception in our culture that religion has a smart people um, problem is also just based on maybe just historical illiteracy. I mean, the fact is that some of the greatest thinkers in the Western tradition uh, have been Christians. And, and the fact is that it's medieval Christianity that invented the university system that these people are trained in and teach in. And, and it's the fact that even today, many fine scholars and, and some of our best thinkers alive, even today, are, are Christians. And so, yeah, in reality, we don't have a smart people problem, but there's a false perception that we do. And we, and we need to work to correct that false perception. Well, Jonathan Fuqua, that's one of the reasons why Joe and I decided to do this show. If there's any way, any small way that we could help to raise the consciousness, like in America, let's say, of the American people, people who call themselves Christians. Joe Racinello says on the show all the time, Christianity in America is, is an inch deep and a mile wide. 
because because people need to take the time. You have to understand your lack of knowledge of these things. Okay, it it, it has consequences. It's not just oh, I don't want to know about that stuff. I just want to watch HBO. It has consequences for our culture, for our society, and people, and for your soul, for your salvation. Okay, but um, let's let's keep it moving. Jonathan Fuqua and Daniel Strudwick are joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Their book, all right, a by strange ways please go out and buy it we're going to get more into the book uh that's available at ignatius press joe racinello i want to stick with that smart people issue question um i agree with what daniel and john said a hundred percent but i'm going to take it in a different direction i think very intelligent people have to figure everything out in their head and there's a lot of things in our faith that you just can't like the resurrection could be an mit engineer you're not coming up with that one. Saint miracles. You know, you could read about the, the miracles of John Paul II, which put him into, into the hall of saints. A, a woman has Parkinson's disease, and then she doesn't. You know, you, you're, you're, a, you're at Wharton Business School. You're studying economics. You're like, whatever, whatever, because it's pride. It's also a lack of obedience. I think simple people know that they're limited. I'll be honest with you. I'm a very average person. I know I'm limited. I have no problems with the, the, with the teachings of the church. I believe them all, all of them blindly, actually. Talk to that because I think that's at the crux of a lot. Like if you look at Catholicism globally, it's simple people, most of which are poor all over the world. It's not like the halls of academia. Yes, there are people, no question. But the swath of Catholics are normal and they believe. Yet you go to some of these schools, even Catholic schools for that matter. You, you mentioned something, you know, tenant of the faith. They don't believe it. What are your thoughts? First, Dan, and then we'll go to John. Well, you know, certainly, I, I think it, what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, the, the majority of people um, that have a deep uh, faith in God are not people with PhDs, and and um, and certainly people with PhDs believe a lot of nonsensical things. I mean, I think it was Peter Kreeft who said, there's no idea so foolish that some PhD doesn't believe it somehow. But, um, but you know, I, I, would, I would say that that sometimes we lose track of what we're trying to do in theology anyway, which is, um, you know, simply put, it's that we're trying to, the aim of theology is to know God so that we can love God better, right? Um, in one of the books that I use for my text, um, uh, Sheed, Frank Sheed says that um, it would be a strange God that we would have if we, could, if we could love him better by knowing him less, right? So the real aim of theology then is for us to to come to know God so that we can love God more deeply, you can't you can't love someone that you don't know. So that's but we can do that in the most simple terms. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, when when Christ was asked about what was central, you know, he recites the Shema in Deuteronomy. He says that that we should love God with our entire beings, right? And interestingly enough, in Luke's um, uh, Luke's gospel, Jesus adds to the words of the Shema the, um, that we should love God with all of our mind, 
right? With, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength and all our mind. So theology, simply put, is just us entering into a way of, of, of coming to know God so that we can, we can love him better. And we can do that on all sorts of different levels. I don't think you have to be going into the minutia of uh, theological controversies to do that. I mean, reading the, the scriptures, um, you know, is profound at any level and is approachable by everyone. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Dan. I, uh, John, I want to I want to keep it moving. I want to come to you for a second. OK, because um, your book is about conversion by strange ways. OK, for those of you just joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, we ask you to go out and buy the book. We're here discussing by strange ways, a book written by Daniel Strudwick and Jonathan Fuqua. Jonathan, let's talk about conversion for a second. OK, um, you're a convert. Your, your wife and I are converts. You were received, as I said in your bio, in 2017. Just briefly, because um, this this isn't the journey home, <laughs> so we don't, we don't have an hour. Uh, but briefly, what, what what was, let's put it like this. I, I hope this is a fair question. What was the primary reason uh, why you decided to, uh, to cross the Tiber, essentially? Yeah, so I'll give you the short version. Uh, uh, there is a longer version because I, I was on the journey. I've been on the journey home with Marcus with Marcus Grodi. So if anybody wants the, the, the details, they can... They can track that down, but it was a combination of, 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 of three things, and I can be brief, I promise. Um, so first, uh, like a lot of Protestant converts, I, I learned that my objections to Catholicism were just based on misunderstandings of Catholicism. You know, I, I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to admit, you know, how, how basic my misunderstandings were. You know, I thought the Catholics worshiped Mary. You know, I didn't understand the basic you know, teaching on, on communion, of the, uh, communion of the saints, you know. I, I thought that the Pope possessed this kind of all, all this omnipotent was this sort of omnipotent figure within the Catholic Church that could change the teachings of the Church at will. Um, and once I once I started, well, what prompted me along this path was I went to Baylor in 2004 to, to do a master's degree, study and to study under Francis Beckwith, a Catholic philosopher who at that time was a, was Episcopalian. So he's a Protestant. In fact, uh, Dr. Beckwith was president of the Evangelical Theological Society when I went there. And then in the middle of my studies there with him, he reverted to the church of his youth, and that forced me to start thinking about Catholicism seriously. And so as I started reading Catholic theology, I realized that my, I didn't understand uh, Catholic theology and that my, my, my objections were all just based on a misapprehension of what the church actually taught. A second thing, though, is that I, I became very dissatisfied with Protestantism. I mean, it just seemed very impractical. Uh, like I, I had a wife and a young child, and I was trying to find out which expression of Christianity was the most authentic ones. I'm reading all this theology from different theolo theological traditions, trying to figure out whose systematic theology is the right one. And it just seemed like a hopeless endeavor because there were good scholars who were good Christians who were from competing theological traditions. They couldn't all be right, but how was I supposed to tell which one was right? Mm. I might even devote my life to this, right, and learn Hebrew and Greek and Latin and still never get the right answers. And I thought, this, this couldn't have been God's plan for the church. It just doesn't work. And then as I started studying church history, I, I realized that the Protestant approach was just ahistorical. This is not the way the church operated. When there was a theological controversy that was big enough to require uh, some kind of resolution, the church would call a council, and they would authoritatively resolve that problem. And then the Christians in the, in the, in, at that time accepted the church's teaching on that matter, and, and the church would move on. So I thought... The Sola Scriptura way of approaching Christianity is ahistorical. Only makes sense in a modern world where you've got a printing press and access to the Bible in your own language. And it's affordable. And it's affordable, exactly. And then it, 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 it seemed that it seemed that Protestantism was uh, also somewhat self-defeating because all the all the objections are based on on the, the fundamental tenet of Sola Scriptura, which itself is not in the Scriptures. 
And then uh, finally, uh, for some reason, I, mean, I, I, I guess it was the Lord impressing this on, on me at the time. I, I just, John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 about the unity of his followers. He, he prays there that his followers would be as unified to, with each other as he is with the Father. Now, that's a pretty tight unity, the unity of the Father and the Son. And Jesus is, is praying to the Father, asking for that kind of unity among his followers. And he even says there that the, if, if, they're, if, the, if the followers, if his followers are divided, that'll be a stumbling block to the world. As, I, as a Protestant, I'm looking at all this division, and I'm thinking this is a stumbling block to people. And, 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 and within Protestantism, there's no mechanism there's no way to satisfy the unity requirement that Jesus wants for his followers. You could only find that in the Catholic tradition. And so those are the three main reasons that I was attracted to the church. Thank, thank you for that, Jonathan Fuqua, who's joining us with Daniel Strudwick. We are discussing their new book out from Ignatius Press, By Strange Ways, Stories of Conversion. Go out and buy the book. Joe Racinello. Guys, let's talk about the men and women in the book. Uh, <clears throat> You got a wide background of folks. You got secularists. You got new age folks. You got punk rock people. Various stripes. I'm people. interested in the punk rock. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm interested <laughs> too. I mean, uh, who who is that? Uh, but seriously, uh, talk about some of the folks in the book. Um, it's it's pretty diverse. Daniel, we'll start with you. Hey, um, well, we we when we first started, we had a few people in mind, and then we started to ask other other people what they thought who who they thought would be right for the book so we started to gather all sorts of different names we wanted to get men and women we wanted to get people that were theologians who became converts we wanted to get converts who became theologians we um the the one the the musician punk rock or i don't even know that the the musicians he mentions in there are outside of my genre so um but that's father father andrew um so he's an Eastern, he's a Byzantine uh, uh, theologian and Catholic uh, priest. Um, so we, we were drawing from all different, uh, you know, different people. And that's what initially uh, brought together this particular collection. Uh, do you want me to give you a, 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 some stories or one or two of the stories? Yeah, that sounds cool. Sure. Okay. Well, um, let's uh, start with maybe Lawrence, um, Lawrence Feingold. Um, that's one of the stories that I, I really, really love. And I think that people will be drawn into it because it's a, it's a story of head and heart, right? And that's been one of the themes we've talked about today so far, that the heart is involved uh, in these uh, uh, conversion stories on so many levels. It's not surely that people are like Dr. Smart, uh, Dr. Spock, um, uh, logicians or something, but they're people who enter in with their full person. Um, his story is interesting because he was a young art student. And as an art student, he was faced with questions of the nature of beauty and the nature of art. And um, this eventually um, brought him to, to study art. And uh, he even moved to, to Rome to become a sculptor. Um, he, he met his wife, Marcia, and the two fell in love. And he says that the main themes of his uh, essay are, are about beauty and, uh, and love. And as he fell more deeply in love with uh, Marcia, and he was asking these questions about the nature of, of beauty, and uh, he came from a background that was partially Jewish and partially Protestant, but, but non-believing, just unchurched, uh, wholly unchurched. So um, when he found himself in Rome, and he found himself uh, uh, deeply falling in love with his wife, and he, he realized that she was in a position where she was becoming depressed, and needed a type of love that he realized that he couldn't provide. 
and he, he realized that she needed an unconditional love, which brought him to ask the question, well, you know, how can that ever be satisfied? You know, he knew that he couldn't do it himself. He loved her deeply, but he couldn't, he couldn't give her an unconditional love. Um, this brought him to something which is similar to C.S. Lewis's argument um, from desire, which is to say that, we, you know, that any desire that we have that's naturally implanted in us would be absurd if it didn't have a fulfillment. So if we have hunger, you know, there's food. If we have a thirst, there's drink. You know, we have not, uh, curiosity, there's knowledge and so forth. So Lawrence Feingold started asking the question, how could we have this deep love? I mean, this deep uh, desire for this love in us if there was no corresponding fulfillment and that without that, it would be absurd, which led him to um, discover, even in reaching out in prayer, that God was this father, this um, unconditional lover. And uh, from there, they make their journey from, from there into Anglicanism and from Anglicanism eventually back into the Catholic Church, I mean, or into the Catholic Church. Um, so it's a really, it's a beautiful story when he talks about um, how, how beauty plays into this, how he started to discover that, um, uh, that, that all of this is a reflection of God, right? Truth and goodness and beauty, the transcendentals. And um, so that, that's one story, but he, he definitely emphasizes the role of the heart there. It wasn't just uh, surely an, uh, a, a head uh, issue. And that, and that and that's great because I mean I remember uh, I think uh, within the last few years I heard Bishop Barron say once uh, the, that the argument from desire when you talk about you know philosophical arguments for God's existence that yes the argument of desire is an underused argument because when I first heard it I was like well yeah that makes all the sense in the world everything that I desire is it, there I can have fulfilled all right and if if it can't be fulfilled well then like you said it's it's absurd John. Um, what uh? What stands out? What, which of the conversion stories in the book would you would you say you're most impressed by, or you could let our audience know that you find the most interesting? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll talk just for a minute about the first one by Barnabas Asprey. So Barnabas Asprey is is a young uh, Catholic theologian who teaches at uh, the University of Oxford, does his PhD at the University of Cambridge. He's a convert from Protestantism, and. Uh, uh, his his journey into the church, I, I, it, my journey resonates with with the things that he says in his essay, and so maybe that's why I'm not so uh, so attracted to his story. But he was he was he was keenly aware of the need for unity within the church. I mean, he was also kind of impressed with this with this high priestly prayer, John 17 issue, that the followers of Christ may be one as as the Son and the Father are one. And so he realizes that's important for the for the Christian faith. And so, being a good Protestant, he 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 looks first of all. To biblical studies, to as as the source for unity. You know, we're, we're divided right now, but if we can just get back to the original languages, and do word studies on the Bible, we'll, we'll figure out the true meaning of Scripture, and we'll we'll be able to bring bring, bring ourselves together. But he, he he says there's there's just as much division within biblical studies as there is in any other academic discipline, uh, maybe even more so. And he realizes that that's a fruitless endeavor, or fruit, as valuable as biblical studies and word studies are. That by itself is not going to bring the broken threads of Christianity back together again. So he says, okay, well, biblical studies, that's insufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Maybe what we need is academic theology. And so he begins to pursue academic theology in this rigorous way. Once again, he runs into the same hurdle. Well, that academic theology is just as divided as biblical studies and as any other field. Again, maybe even more so. Um, and so he realizes pretty quickly that's not going to work out as a road to unity. 
So finally, he says, okay, he kind of he admits the need for tradition, small t tradition. He's not yet to the point of, of, of conceding the need for a magisterium, a living authority, but he at least recognizes the need for tradition. So he starts digging into, into this idea of tradition, and he realizes that tradition develops over time. And he, and he further realizes that you need some kind of demarcation. How do you say what's a legitimate development of the tradition and, and, and something like a mutation of that tradition, an illegitimate development? And so he sees you need some kind of authority above the tradition to say what's a legitimate development and what's a mutation of that tradition. And, but the only other option left is a living authority, a magisterium. And so it's kind of a process of elimination. He, he sees that only a living magisterium can secure the kind of unity that Christ desired for his church, and that was sort of his path in. And so I think it's, it's a pretty good story, and it's a pretty good argument, frankly. Yeah, yeah, it is. We, we have to take a break. I mean, I, this is a conversation, Joe Resinello, I think I can speak to you. We could just talk for hours, but we're going to make, we're going to, we're going to get the best out of this conversation that we can. Dr. Jonathan Fuqua, Dr. Daniel Strudwick are joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial. Two things, download the app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And if you like what Joe and I do, you can find us at the front line with Joe and Joe on YouTube. Also, at with Joe and Joe, at with Joe and Joe on Twitter. Please follow us there. We're trying to build up our audience on Twitter now that it's actually a free speech platform. So we encourage you to go out and buy their book, Buy Strange Ways. That's out at Ignatius Press. Stick around. We have another half hour with these two fabulous guests. Catholic Radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Joe we are way in the breach with Jonathan Fuqua and Daniel Strudwick. We're discussing their new book, By Strange Ways, the stories of conversion, uh, which everybody loves conversion stories, and that's why we love this conversation. The book is available at Ignatius Press. Joe Resinello, where do you want to go? I want to talk about the one thing that keeps people from the church, because many people who are not in the church have one underlying reason that many times they don't share. Um, and I want to tell a story that kind of could give some color to that, and then I'd love both of you to respond. I went to a lecture uh, with a Jesuit. He was a, a physicist and a philosopher, and he argued in the exist for the existence of God in the way of Thomas Aquinas without using the word God. It was flawless, flawless. It was brilliant, if you ask me. And I went with a friend of mine who was an engineer. He worked at Hewlett Packard, infinitely more intelligent than I. And afterwards, we went to lunch. And I was like, Emilio, that was amazing, that conversation. This is all he says to me. I don't agree with the math. How? How can you not agree with that math? It's perfect. How do you address that? Because one thing Francis said, as in Pope Francis, that I think is absolutely 100% spot on, you're never going to argue anyone in the church. You're simply not. I went to that lecture. It was flawless. Emilio clearly could understand. I don't agree with the math. <laughs> How do you address that? What's the problem? First, Dan, then we'll go to John. 
Boy, um, it, it's a good question. I mean, I think it brings us back, you know, again to to the theme of of the heart, right? Um, some some of the the contributors mentioned Blaise Pascal um, in their in their essays, but Blaise Pascal said. Uh, he has that famous quote where he says, the heart has reasons that reason does not know. But when he's treating on the hiddenness of God, he, he says something along the lines that we make a decision for God um, at, at this fundamental core of who we are. We make a decision for openness or we close ourselves off to God at this level. So he says, for those, because he's, he's asking the question, why is God hidden? And his answer is that God will give just so much light that those who want to see him will be able to see him, but that those who do not want to see him will not be forced to see him. And I think that that is, there's a real key there that, um, that we, we have a fundamental openness or disposition towards hearing those arguments, or we close ourselves off because we know the cost uh, of those arguments. So no matter how great uh, a lecture that, that, uh, uh, you are at, if you have someone who doesn't have that fundamental openness, I don't think that the intellectual argument will work. Absolutely. Jonathan, your thoughts on that? Yeah, on a, on a purely intellectual level. I mean, I, I think when you're dealing with a specific person and, and their response to a specific argument, I would say, okay, well, well, well listen, Emilio, I, I mean, um, the, the Jesuit gave an argument. The argument had premises. The conclusion follows from the premises. So the argument is sound. So if you think that that the argument doesn't work it must be because one of the premises is false and you reporting an intuition that the math doesn't add up is not the same thing as giving an argument if you want to rebut the argument you have to say which of the premises is false or maybe show that the argument is logically fallacious such that the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises but again merely reporting an intuition is not the same thing as giving an argument um I, I think you can also uh, you can also uh, maybe d dig deeper uh, and, and you know someone who's steeped in uh, in the math ma mathematics and the natural sciences as an engineer would be, you could point out that the natural sciences themselves are based on two presuppositions that only make sense if God exists. First, that nature is intelligible, and second, that the human mind can understand nature. That if the human mind is a reliable detector of the patterns of intelligibility that are built into nature itself. Neither one of those assumptions make a whole lot of sense if God does not exist. So you don't get anything like the success of the natural sciences if there's no God. I mean, another way into that is maybe through the principle of sufficient, sufficient reason, the PSR. Um, there's different versions of it. One version of it is, is, that, is that it says that contingent realities have an explanation, some sufficient reason for why they exist and why they have the features they do. The principle of sufficient reason is presupposed by all human inquiry, physics, biology included. But once you apply it to the PSR to contingent reality itself, and you ask the question, well, could everything that exists be only contingent? That is, could, it, could everything that exists be such that it's received its existence from another, and it depends for its existence on another? You can see that the answer to those questions has to be no, because if only contingent things exist, there's no source of existence. There has to be something outside of contingent reality that provides all of contingent reality with being, some necessary transcendent first cause, what, what St. Thomas called pure being itself. So the, ver the, the most fundamental presuppositions of science, the intelligibility of nature or the PSR, and the reliability of the human mind, both make sense only if God exists. 
You know, Jonathan, we mentioned the atheists, like like people like the Four Horsemen and Dawkins like that. When you guys make that argument, both of you, what you just said, if you want to hear the, hear the greatest example of a word salad, all right, I suggest you go and listen to some of these guys try to rebut what you just said. What Joe just said about, about that Jesuit is that even lay people like me and Joe, all right, we only have PhDs in common sense on the wall. Okay, we, 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 we're again, we're educated guys. We're not saying that we went to college and everything. We have our degrees, but we're not we don't think on that level sometimes. But the point is, you don't need to. You don't need to. You don't need to have gone to like the Ivy League or anything like that to understand these arguments. That's why I mentioned the atheist, because, like I said, I've heard some word salad come out of their mouth to try to rebut that. And I'm like, dude, even I know what you just said makes no sense at all. The latest one, I think, is that because they can't rebut that argument, is that now we have an um, an infinite multiverse because they need that in order to, you know, in order to back up their arguments. Uh, like you said, it just goes back, back, back. There are no, there's nothing contingent. There's no first cause. None of none of the uh, Thomistic arguments hold up because that eh, it's all infinite and there's trillions of universes. It's a multiverse. So we just answered that. Let's move on. Nothing to see here. That's why I find it so intellectually dishonest jonathan fuqua and dan strudwick jonathan your comments on that i feel like you want to comment on that yeah i mean an infinite collection of contingent entities does not remove the need to explain the existence of contingent reality it doesn't matter whether you have one contingent entity or an infinite number of contingent entities the point is that contingent reality receives its existence from another that's what makes it contingent and so contingent reality just as such whether one or infinite must have some necessary being that explains it or it couldn't exist. But exactly. And, and the one thing I would say to that, it's always very convenient, especially given the atheists that we were discussing, whether it's Dawkins or Harris, they always have some reason to dismiss an argument that has nothing to do with actually rebutting the argument. Something along the lines of, I don't have to argue with Aquinas, he thought the earth was flat, or we don't need metaphysics because we have physics. These are BS Part of my life is a family channel. All right. This, these are BS statements that they make because they're, they, I just don't think they're equipped or they don't want to argue, you know, with a logical argument, like you just said. So Joe was, uh, he asked a question about how some people refuse to see something, let's say, so logical or so linear in the case of this Jesuits argument. I have an example for you guys, and I, I would love your comments. Okay. Uh, one of the greatest modern conversion stories is, um, is Cardinal Newman. OK, so, uh, Dan, I'd love your comments. How towering a figure was Cardinal Newman? Because he's one of those people that sat down and said, I'm going to disprove this Catholic stuff. All right. And they think he came to a bit of a different conclusion. Dan, I'm going to start with you on that. Yeah, um, I, I think Cardinal Newman, as as he progressed as a as a scholar and an intellectual, was he, he, he was he saw clearly that there were elements um of his Anglican uh, past that were very attractive, and they were very much, uh, you know, they were tied to Catholicism. Um, but, and, and he thought that Anglicanism might have been enough, right? So he was saying, well, okay, let's rediscover some of these, these um, beautiful elements of our Catholic past, but we can live it out within this Anglican, what he called the middle way. Um, but as, as as he moved forward and progressed, he started to see that that was not enough and that he needed to come, uh, you know, the, the full way, uh, all the way into, into the Catholic Church. And that was a very difficult um, 
decision and move for for Newman because it was going to be very costly. Um, you know, it cost him a lot of relationships and position, uh, you know, personal friendships and, and so forth. And um, it was also difficult because he wasn't really uh, welcomed with open arms into the Catholic Church right away either. Um, there were some people who were suspect of, of uh, Newman as he was coming in as a very well-known uh, theological figure uh, being received into the Catholic Church. So, I mean, Newman is towering, and you'll notice in the, uh, the almost every single one of our contributors mentions the role of Newman in their conversion, even though um, Newman was instrumental for Jonathan and I because we were talking about Newman's upcoming canonization when we started the, the book, but um, we didn't mention this to any of the contributors, and almost all of them mention Newman being uh, instrumental in their coming into the church. So what strikes, what, what strikes me there is, I want to throw this over to Jonathan. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're at the front line with Joe and Joe. Jonathan Fuqua and Dan Strudwick were discussing their new book, By Strange Ways, available at Ignatius Press. Um, it's like a St. Paul moment, Dan, you know what I mean? It's like, why did God choose St. Paul? Because I think God, well, God did know. Everybody's going to go, that guy? Really? That that guy? He, you're, you're telling me he believes in Jesus now? Um, you know, and, and, and the impact of that. Uh, Dan, I love your comments on that because, yeah, it strikes me that Newman, not, not only because of the intellectual heft that he brought, let's say, with him, uh, given how, how really, you know, uh, intelligent the, the man was, but the fact that, as Dan just alluded to, okay, a lot of people were like, wait a minute, that guy's been arguing against the faith, okay, for, for all this time. That is who's now coming into the Catholic Church. Love your comments on that, Jonathan Fuqua. Yeah, I mean, uh, the title of our book, By Strange Ways, is actually a line from Newman. And, and there's a little quote from Newman very early in the book. And, and Newman talks about how the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. And he, he knows how to draw us back home to the church. And, and, and you see that in these contributors. Their stories are very diverse. Uh, but as Daniel mentioned, uh, uh, they all discuss Newman, uh, uh, almost all of them discuss Newman and the role he played. And there, there are two, two things Newman is, 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 uh, is famous for that I think exercise a powerful influence for a lot of people. One is his work on the development of doctrine. I mean, Newman talks about in his essay on the development of doctrine how every great idea, whether it's philosophical, scientific, or theological, develops over time. And so this, this effort to get back to an undeveloped doctrine, it's kind of primitive Christianity, without any of the accoutrements of theological tradition and theological development, it, 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 it's you're playing a losing game, Newman says, because all great ideas develop. And so if that's true, then as Barnabas Asprey points out, you need some kind of living magisterium to differentiate between genuine development of doctrine, the deposit of faith, and a mutation, an illegitimate development. And the other thing, the other uh, thing that Newman, well, he's famous for a lot of things, but particularly with conversion, he says... Uh, something like to see, to to be deep in his, history is to cease to be Protestant, and uh, and I, I really do uh, think that's true. And my pro my Protestant friends hate that line hate that line from Newman. But when you go back and read the writings of the Church Fathers and you read about the the early liturgies of the Church, it, it looks like a young Catholic Church. And and Newman realized he was a, he was, that was his ex his expertise was patrology. He was a patristics guy, and so the more he dug deeply into the history of the Church and the de development of doctrine, the more he realized that. Uh, where 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 he needed to go <laughs> across the Tiber, right? And I, I guess the challenge is, I mean, I know I can only I can't speak for any anybody out there. I can only speak for myself. The challenge is to be honest with yourself, to say what it is you believe, what it is. Uh, like in my case, you know, I, I said I wasn't I wasn't going to start practicing the Catholic. I was going to go find some other religion. 
because I didn't want to do what the Catholic Church told me to do. That's my story. I like Joe mentioned earlier. I didn't want to put things down. You know, and I knew the church was going to say, no, you, you're going to have to put those things down. I think there's a lack of honesty. I don't want to judge people. I don't want to come across that way. But if you're searching for the truth, you have to be honest. And, and, and you know, I always hear atheists and people, other people do say, do you ever question what you believe? Yeah, I did my whole life. All right. The reason I'm in the church is because I believe it, because I did question it. Anyway, Joe Racinello, where do you want to go? I think it's funny. I was going to say something along those same lines, Joe. I think people aren't honest with themselves. Uh, my friends always make this joke about another one of our childhood friends. If you can't lie to yourself, who can you lie to? I think people exist in that reality. Um, we lie to ourselves, even when logic is put forth because of what you just said. You know, I'm divorced and remarried. And the church says, I can't do that. So therefore, I, I'm, I don't believe in the Catholicism. I'm going to attack it. I'm going to attack it. Even if it's completely linear, it's completely logical. I'm just using one example. I think a lot of people do that. But also, I want to talk about grace. Because I think that this book isn't an example of arguments necessarily. It's about grace. Because faith is a gift. And God gives us that grace. We'll start with Dan. We'll go to John. I think that's very important um, because ultimately it's God who reveals us uh, his truths, opens our eyes, and that's a grace. Dan, you want to kick that one off? Yeah. Um, and and I think that, that uh, maybe taking in a little uh, – try to – taking a little different uh, direction or, or spin off from that. Um, you know, we're living in a, in a, in a difficult time. I mean, uh, you know, when I, when I listen to you guys, I've been watching your, uh, your, your podcast and I, I see I mean, we're dealing with real big issues in the world right now. And it's a difficult time to be a Catholic Christian. And um, because of that, we need to avail ourselves to the sources of grace that are found in the church. I mean, I think sometimes we're just we're just not tapping into uh, the resources that are uh, available to us so that we can experience grace. Right. I was thinking about this over the past week and saying, you know, we need to to look at start reading sacred scripture, just making it a part of our lives. Right. We need to, to be deep in the Bible. We need to receive the sacraments uh, frequently. I mean, I don't know how anyone makes it without going to confession once a month. I, I don't know how I, I would I just wouldn't I wouldn't make it. Um, so we need to be receiving the Eucharist and being uh, uh, having receptive hearts there, too. Right. Being able to say, I mean, uh, the reception of that grace that's available to us is conditioned upon our our receptivity, our openness to, to receiving it, because the, the power of the sacraments is there. Right. But but we need to to have that fundamental uh, uh, disposition of openness. I mean, we have the lives of the saints. We have devotions. Um, you know, there are tons of things to to, uh, you know, praying before holy icons and, and the moral guidance of the church, the apostolic authority of the church. We have so many things available to us. Um, when I was reading um, Rod Dreher's um, Benedict option, you know, we're there. He talks about the need for Christian uh, communities to become really strong. Um, and, and, you know, fellowship together in a really uh, tight way. I mean, I think we need to avail ourselves of all of those uh, sources of grace and do it together uh, as a community. So, 
I, I want to uh, throw it over to Jonathan. One thing I'll say about that is on the community level, that's something that Joe and I talk about on the show all the time. We had that at one point in America. Joe and I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. That's exactly what we had. Was it perfect? No, absolutely not. And many of the problems that other communities had. But we were the, at the center of that community, whether you liked it or not, was the Roman Catholic Church. Dan, you and I had a conversation. That St. Francis Xavier Church on Bloomfield Avenue, that was the center of the North Ward a very tight-knit Catholic community, mostly Italian, some Irish sprinkled in, some German, but mostly Italian, all right? And we had that. We had that community. You did say, even if you didn't realize that was coming from our faith, you did say, I, I really shouldn't be doing that, or I shouldn't be doing that, or I shouldn't be going in that direction, all right? You knew it. That's, I'm sorry, that's been blown apart in, in, in the last, in, my, in our lifetimes, in the last 40, 50 years, that whole community. I, mean, I think we need to, Kind of get back to that a little bit. So I just wanted to mention that. John, I, I, I want to kick it back over to you for your comments on what we were talking about. Yeah, the question of grace. I mean, it, it's it's we all know it's a teaching of the church that faith is a gift. It has to be received. And you can see that in the conversion stories in the book, that you can see the the, the integral, indispensable role played by the divine instigation, where, where God reaches into the lives of these contributors and begins to unlock things in their mind and unlock things in their heart and remove hurdles and open the way for them to see, see the, the goodness and the truth and the beauty of Catholic Christianity. And so, yeah, we all, we can plant seeds and we can, we can give arguments that help to remove obstacles that may block the path. But ultimately the best thing we can probably do for people is to, is to pray that the Holy spirit really works in their lives and blesses them with that gift of faith. Absolutely. Jonathan Fuqua and Dan Strudwick joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, their new book, By Strange Ways, available at Ignatius Press. Please buy it from the publisher. Uh, support our Catholic publishers. Joe Racinello, where do you want to go? <clears throat> I want to just piggyback on that. Faith, I want to read this and then just discuss it a bit. Faith is a matter of action. It requires action before all of its conclusions are proven. I think a good way you could talk about, say, someone who is in the faith who basically says, I go to church, I don't I don't get anything out of it as a doctor or, you know, or you, you would diagnose a problem. Well, as a practicing Catholic, what I would say to that person is, are you going to confession? Are you going to confession? So you receive the grace of the sacrament. But then there could be somebody who basically I don't believe in God. I think oh, like a path which is not like in your face, it's not preachy, is adoration. A priest once told Joe and I, he's a Carmelite, he's a friend of ours, he said, adoration is radiation. I'm a big believer in it. I go uh, on Saturdays and Sundays for a half hour, my wife will alternate. We go on the weekends, uh, sit for 30 minutes. I think if people said these words, which are the words basically simply this i don't believe in you but i want to help me and just sit there and then leave and do it repeatedly five minutes once a week i bet you you'd believe in god after a while it's an honest statement i don't believe in you but i want to what are your thoughts on that because i think it's not like in your face it's not like you got to be a pro-life person. You can't use contraception. You know, you, you like people, like you get in people's faces, you know, like, like, and you see a lot of that. Frankly, Joe and I do that to, to a degree. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think that is, you know, piggybacking on what John said, God knows how to get us. 
We got to get in front of them. If we get in front of them and we're honest, I don't believe in you, but I want to. Help me. I bet you he will. What do you think, Dan? Yep, I I, I would agree. I mean, I think it, it goes back to that comment about um, Pascal where, you know, if we have that fundamental openness, if we can maybe move our heart at that level where we say, well, I'm going to at least open the door. Um, you know, there are lots of... Um, uh, you know, God will take advantage of almost any opening. Um, I use a story from John Wright, who's a science fiction um, author in my Theology of Death course, where, you know, John C. Wright um, what, did not want to pray any kind of prayer at all and was a very hardened atheist. Um, he was a blogger and, and so forth. And he, he, I mean, he was so strident that he convinced his own father to renounce the faith. Right. So he was pretty hardcore uh, atheist, but he had a bunch of Christian friends and they were uh, in the scientific science fiction community and they convinced him to try to say a prayer. So John C. Wright says this prayer and you can read that you can find this online. It's a it's a really funny prayer because he says, OK, God, um, I do not believe in you and I don't think it's possible that you exist. And even if you appeared to me, I would think it's a hallucination and I would not believe it. But because my friends tell me that you're benevolent and that you're a good God and that I could lose my soul, I'm going to say this one prayer because they tell, I, I try to convince them that I'm an open-minded person, so I'm going to do this. So he says this prayer, and very shortly after that, has a massive heart attack and is convinced that he, his heart stopped beating. He has this, these supernatural visions in which Christ appears to him, the Blessed Virgin appears to him, all of these things happen to him, and his heart starts back up, and he's brought back to life. And um, he, he, over the course of the next week or so, um, this type of thing continues, and he has to renounce all, all of his, his atheism, get back on his, his uh, website, and say what happened. And he was mocked by all of these science, uh, science fiction people. And um, people wrote really nasty uh, you know, letters to him and all of this. But I mean, he, he talks about the fact that it was you know, that fundamental small little openness right there um, you know, ushered in a massive conversion. And he, he always said, he says in the, uh, his description that he says, I'm denied the one blessing that my fellow believers um, are given, which is that, um, I had to see to believe, right? Where they did not see and still believe. So he says, I'm, I'm ashamed in front of them. But I do think it's a story that talks about if you give God a little bit of an opening and being before the Blessed Sacrament and saying the prayers that you were saying, Joe, I think that that would be, uh, you know. I, I love that story. I mean, God could be pretty dramatic when he wants to be. <laughs> That's great. Um, Jonathan, your thoughts on, um, on adoration. Yeah, just to follow up on that, Daniel makes me think of uh, Eleanor Stump, a Catholic philosopher who teaches at St. Louis University. Her her reading of St. Thomas on faith and grace is that what it takes for God to infuse faith into the soul is for you to stop resisting him. And one way to stop resisting him <laughs> is to pray a prayer like that, or even better, go to adoration, go go sit in front of the Blessed Sacrament and, and say that prayer or something like it. And 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 uh, and once you stop resisting, God's going to start working on the heart there, and, and to to infuse that gift of faith into your soul. I mean, the 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 Bible the Bible's pretty pretty clear, right? Seek and seek, and you will find. I mean, uh, he they those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. You know, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all with all of your heart. Uh, you, so some people seem to think they're going to find find God in the pages of peer reviewed journal articles. 
and 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 while I would while I would encourage people to keep reading peer-reviewed journal articles, mm -hmm. and, but to expand your reading as well, maybe read Augustine, maybe maybe read Saint Thomas, maybe read Pope Saint John Paul Paul II. You know, God, God is a personal being, and we the fact is we don't know persons mainly through philosophical arguments. If you think about you, you know if you're if you're married or you have a good friendship. The way, the way that you know your wife is not by philosophically proving things to one another. It's by engaging in the ways of knowing that are unique to persons. And God is a personal being, tri-personal being, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so if we really want to know whether God exists and what God is like, then we need to engage in those personal ways of knowing. Uh, like Daniel said, re reading sacred scripture, prayer, exposure to the, to the, to the blessed sacrament. Um, what, one more, just one more thought on that front. Please. A lot of people in our culture think that in order to have faith, you have to first understand everything. You know, under, first, I'll understand everything, then I'll have faith. Well, in the Catholic tradition, we reverse that, right? We have this great, this great slogan, fides quorens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. First, you have faith, and then you, you, then you understand. In fact, you couldn't understand. I mean, St. Augustine is pretty clear that you couldn't understand at all unless you had faith, right? I mean, take, we could take this back to, to the earlier part of the conversation. And it applies to something like nat the natural sciences and the intelligibility of nature. You can't understand the world unless you first have faith that it's intelligible, which requires faith that God exists. Right. And so, and so, um, and 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 so, yeah. And so, it. it I mean, go back. Uh, the, the marriage analogy is a good one here too, right? Because you might say, well, I, I'll marry this woman. I'll commit myself to her only, only if I first understand her. No, no, no. That's not how you understand the woman who's going to be your wife. You make the commitment of faith. And then you begin to understand her once you're in that relationship of love. And so I, I would encourage people to start engaging in these practices of the heart, even commit yourself to God in a kind of Pascalian way and, and, and just see what might happen. You, you guys are awesome. I just want to say that. You're welcome on this show anytime. This has been a fantastic <laughs> conversation. Uh, we encourage everyone to go out and buy your book, Buy Strange Ways, uh, Stories of Conversion. Uh, everybody out there at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network is going to love it. Daniel Strudwick, Jonathan Fuqua, thank you so much for coming on the front line with Joe and Joe. You're you guys are, are welcome back here anytime you want to discuss anything you want. So thank you really sincerely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you very much. Thank you. You got it. And thank you all out there for listening to us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Two things. Download the app, Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app, so that you can, um, so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And where you see Joe and I on social media, uh, YouTube, The Frontline with Joe and Joe, and Twitter, at with Joe and Joe, at with Joe and Joe. Like, subscribe, share, follow, do all that fun stuff. Thank you again for joining us. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.